0: Of God's Word, and why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter one? Genesis chapter one. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page one. <clears throat> I will uh, continue in Revelation next week. Today uh, we study what the Bible teaches about the image of God in man. It is Sanctity of Life Sunday, a time we set aside to remember the dignity and worth of every person. Uh, last June, we rejoiced in the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. Let's pray that it lasts Yet this does not mean the work of the church is finished when it comes to the sanctity of life. Abortion is but one symptom of a greater problem. Owen Strahan published a book called Reenchanting Humanity A Theology of Mankind. And to introduce the book, he borrows the idea of enchantment. I think I've shared this idea with you before. Enchantment not in the sense of placing you under a spell, but in the sense of dazzling you with true beauty. Enchantment, he thinks, captures what occurs when we grasp the Bible's view of humanity. God, the beautiful one, made the human race as his capstone work, his corporeal masterpiece. But when it comes to our skeptical secularist era, we've been told that we people are the chance result of impersonal chaos, working its dark magic on the universe. We have no divine origin. There is no design or goal to our bodies and identities, and there is no God. What's the outcome of such thinking? Well, humanity is disenchanted. Humanity is not filled with wonder. That's the greater problem. When society views itself apart from their divine origin, when society rejects the creator's design, when society ignores the goal of their existence, it spirals downward into an ugly, and pointless chaos. And that chaos includes ripping children apart in the womb and doctors mutilating children's bodies outside the womb. It includes leaders who are unwilling to answer what is a woman and parents who tell their children to make themselves Into whatever they want. It includes women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men committing shameless acts with other men. It includes power hungry leaders starting wars. It includes exploiting others for personal gain. It includes showing partiality based on sex, status, or skin color. It includes replacing humans with robots in relationships, and the approval of, no kidding, mobile euthanasia units. The van will show up at your house. The list goes on. Our culture is in a crisis over what humanity is. And the Bible is not surprised. Murder, exploitation, man-stealing, prejudice, bestiality, child sacrifice, men pretending to be women. The Bible recognizes this chaos. It names the chaos, and it tells us where it came from, man rejecting the creator in his design. But the Bible also dazzles us with something far more beautiful. To grasp the Bible's vision of humanity and what God does in Christ to renew humanity is to become filled with wonder once again. So let's see what Scripture says about humanity. Our nature, our function, and our need. That's where we're going. Our nature, our function, and our need. First, let's see what the Bible says about our nature as the image of God. Our nature as the image of God. Genesis 1 is our starting place. It opens uh, with God creating the heavens and the earth. He creates light on day one, the sky and the waters on day two. The dry land and the plants on day three. And then on days four, five, and six, God fills these domains with with various lights and birds and fish and animals. And then God creates man. Verse 26 says Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So from the outset, we learn that humans are not a cosmic coincidence. We are fashioned by a careful creator, God made us in His image. Now, some relate the image to man's ability to reason. Others relate it to man's capacity as a moral creature. Others say it has more to do with our spiritual makeup and our ability to relate to God and to relate to others. And these attempts, they do touch on on aspects that may distinguish humans from from other creatures, and they they point at things that are good, but, but none really capture what the first readers heard in the word image. In the ancient world, kings were seen to represent the presence of a god on earth. A king would conquer lands, and then as he would conquer a land, he would place an image there. And he'd go to the next land and place an image there. And that image stood, so to speak, for the God's presence. The image was a visual representation of the God ruling through the king. But it comes as no surprise then that, uh, you know, when God has Moses write the creation account, well, he does so with imagery familiar to the readers of that day. Image stood for visual representation. But here's where the creation account is far better. God isn't like a local deity. No, he rules everything because he made everything. And then God creates humans in his image. Only these image bearers aren't like those of the ancient Near East that cannot see, that cannot hear, that cannot touch, that cannot act or speak. No, according to chapter 2, verse 7, God breathes life into his image bearers. Also, the image doesn't belong to just one, the tyrant who's going around conquering things. It belongs to all of them. All humans are these visual representatives, not to receive worship, but to reflect to each other the one creator God who is worthy of worship. And so your life as an image bearer is like an angled mirror. You reflect what God is like to others so that when others see your good deeds, they glorify God who is in heaven to use the words of Matthew 5, 16. This reality sets you apart. God created many things for His glory. Think of them. He created the sun. He created the stars. He created the galaxies, the clouds and the birds, the elephants and chinchillas. He created the whales, and turtles, trees, and mountains. He created the fiery angels and the mighty seraphs. But none of these things bear the image of God. Only one creation was made in His image, and that is you. God's image sets you apart. Even the way God wrote Genesis 1 makes this clear. Did you notice? Uh, you, no, you didn't because I didn't read it all. But did you, did you look at the verbs? Chapter, I mean, verse 3. Let there be light. Verse 6. Let there be an expanse. Verse 9. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered. Verse 11. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, let the waters swarm. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth. But oh, what an interesting switch in verse 26. Let us make. Not just let there be, but let us Make. It's meant to grab you. Something unique is happening here. You'll also notice that verse 27 is a little bit indented in your Bibles, like you would find reading a psalm. And so, what we're seeing here is that the prose has broken into poetry with the creation of man. And I wonder if such a moment inspired great writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien with, when, when the creation of their narrative worlds is set to music. Aslan sings Narnia into existence, for example. When God puts his image into man, there is music in the story. There is no music in evolution. But when male and female bear the likeness of God, God's song of creation has reached a crescendo here. It is a beautiful picture. In the broader sweep of Scripture's story, this makes perfect sense because the image of God in man also anticipates the incarnation of God's Son, the truly beautiful one. Consider it with me for a moment. We read in Genesis 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Colossians 1.16 also adds that all things were created through the Son and for the Son. But consider one more piece. The son of God eventually takes to himself a human nature, John 1:14. And when he does, Colossians 1:15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You following me? When God creates man in his image, he creates that image through the son and for the Son, and with the goal that all creation would reflect the Son who would bear that image himself as a man. Read Genesis 1 through those lenses. We'll return to that later, but for now, just keep in mind that whatever you say about God's image in man, it must account for how God reveals that image most fully fully, And most clearly in the person of Jesus. Two more observations about our our nature as image bearers. The image of God, like I said, belongs to all people. It's not limited to the healthy, it's not limited to the strong. There's no survival of the fittest. It's not limited to the old or the young, to those outside the womb versus inside the womb. It's not limited to the rich over the poor. One ethnic group doesn't possess more of the image than others. Men don't have more of the image than women, or vice versa. The image of God belongs to all people. Even after the fall of man into sin, the image abides in all people. It's, it's true that sin greatly marred the image of God, but that doesn't mean the image is lost. Consider Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. After the fall of man into sin, we find the image of God passing to Adam. Adam's children after him. Seth is born into his image. After the fall of man, uh, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. After the flood, I mean, I mentioned the fall of man a minute ago. The flood. After the flood, we find the dignity of man. Reasserted in God's covenant with Noah, Genesis 9, chapter 6, God puts severe consequences in place for those who take human life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That's a universal covenant applied to all, and, and it assumes that all people maintain a special dignity endowed by their Creator. Also, if you look at James chapter 3, verse 9, he's rebuking the Christians and he says, with our tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so even after sin enters the world, God's image in mankind persists. Image bearers shouldn't be treated lightly. We shouldn't even degrade them with words, James says. So that's a few observations on our nature as God's image bearers. But what about functioning as God's image bearers? Our function as the image of God. If if God made us visual representation, representatives, right? Well, how does that play out? And I'd like to answer that by looking again at, at Genesis 1 alongside Genesis 2. And a few other passages. And what stands out to me are three specific ways we image God ruling, serving, and speaking. Let's look first at ruling like God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion. Now, some of your translations uh, bring up a purpose statement here in verse 26. Let us make man in our image so that they may rule. One of your purposes. We see it again in verses in the parallel structure, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now notice, the be fruitful and multiply connects with the male and female. He created them. And then have dominion connects with the image of God. He created them. So ruling, having dominion, ruling creation rightly is one way we image God. People get glimpses of God's glory when we rule in ways that reflect His righteousness. People get glimpses of God's glory when we, when we uh, rule in ways that reflect His love. And that reflect his the way he, he orders creation, and the way he provides for his people, and the way he leads them and, and protects them. We might say this: God is the true king, but he created us to reflect his rule as lesser kings. Serving is another way we image God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Maybe your translation has to cultivate and maintain it. That's fine, but there's more implied here than just gardening. When these words appear together elsewhere, they're usually translated to serve and keep to serve and keep. Usually it has to do with Israelites serving God, keeping his his word. We also find them referring to the priests who were serving in the tabernacle, in in God's presence, God's dwelling place. And the point is this, is that later revelation helps clarify the type of role that Adam had in the garden. Not only was he to rule as a king, he was to serve in God's presence, much like a priest, a, a worshiper. This is why the, the tabernacle and temple would later have these beautiful colors, right? Go on forever about these descriptions of ornate blossoms, right? And trees carved and cherubs and the gold and, and, and precious stones. And, and it was, it's all there in your Bibles uh, in, in the, temple, the tabernacle and the temple to, to, to kind of capture something of what God's original dwelling with man was like in Eden, Adam was to enjoy serving in God's presence and keeping his word unhindered by sin. All of life was quorum Deo, was before the face of God. One further way we image God is by speaking. Speaking. Throughout Genesis 1, God speaks. He speaks creation into existence. He orders creation by his word, And then as God's image bearer, we see Adam speaking too. His words don't create, but they provide order. He orders the animals by naming them. He's the first to receive God's word, and he's the first to speak God's word to the woman. God writes poetry about Uh, the man and woman in Genesis 1, and Adam speaks poetry over his wife in Genesis 2.23. The way you use words tells a story about your God. This will become even clearer when we get to some New Testament passages in a moment. For now, let's summarize, God made you in his image, and that image has everything to do with being a visual representation of God. People see this especially when we rule as kings under God's authority, and when we serve like priests in God's presence, and when we speak as one filled with God's word, a prophet perhaps. What a beautiful picture. What an awesome vision for humanity. I mean, it's enough to leave David awestruck in Psalm chapter 8. In Psalm 8, David says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you set in, in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. This is an amazing story, the image of God in man. But with the writer of Hebrews, who reflects on Psalm 8, our our experience tells us something is wrong. Something is warped here. People abuse their authority. Families are full of strife. Parents neglect their children and rule, them, or, or they rule them with an iron fist. James three says that in terms of our rulership, we can't even control our tongues. We don't even have rule over our tongues. If, and if anybody can rule his tongue, he is what? He is a perfect man, a perfect image-bearer. But we lie, we complain, we whine, we tear down people, we corrupt with our words. Instead of ruling creation, creation rules people as they turn created things into idols, into images that are lifeless. People even destroy the earth. Itself instead of caring for it. In Adam, we also lack the ability to serve before God. Sin bends us in on ourselves. The goal of life becomes self defined and, not surprisingly, self centered. And this is how the story goes for all people who are born in Adam. The image of God has been marred by sin. Think of that mirror earlier. Smeared with mud, caked with mud. What we, in our ruling and in our serving and in our speaking, we warp what we're supposed to reflect about God. Our ruling, our serving, our speaking often lie to other people about what God is like. Hence, all of the chaos that I listed at the beginning of this message. So what do you mean, Psalm 8, that God put everything in subjection to man? Don't you see this crisis? And the writer of Hebrews feels the tension. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, he says, At the present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to mankind. Why? Because in Adam... We see man functioning as he was cursed, not as he was created. And this highlights our need for the image renewed by the person and work of Jesus. It highlights our need for the image renewed by the person and work of Jesus. Hebrews 2.8 says, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, meaning to him, mankind. But we do see him who, who. We do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And what's he doing? Now he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And he did this, it says in verse 10, in order that he might bring the many sons to glory. So God sent his son into the world as the new Adam to redeem and renew the image of God in his people. And when we see this Jesus, we see this perfect image bearer, Colossians 1.15 tells us. Indeed, we see God himself. And not simply because Jesus has a divine nature, that's true, but because Jesus truly images God in all that he does as a man. To look at Jesus ruling, serving, and speaking in the flesh is to see God himself Revealed, God himself visually represented to perfection. He speaks God's words. I speak just as the Father taught me, John 8, 28. He rules over disease and death. We've been seeing that in Matthew's gospel. He rules with perfect justice and compassion for sinners. He rules with humility and generosity. Jesus also serves God faithfully. It's his food to do the will of the Father, John 4. He's a better priest than all before him, Hebrews 9 and 10. He offers his own body in sacrifice to God to forgive us for all the ways that we have distorted God's image. But more than that, God raised Jesus from the dead to renew God's image in you. That's why Romans eight twenty nine says that we were predestined to be conformed to the what? The image of his Son. Or how about 2 Corinthians 3.18? By beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. Image from one degree of glory to another. Or Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self, Christian, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And what have we been learning from Revelation? By the blood of the Lamb, God makes us a kingdom of priests and we shall reign on the earth. He also makes us into a prophetic people by the Spirit who speak the words of God and the testimony of Jesus That's where he's taking us. Jesus liberates us from sin to fulfill our function as God's image bearers in ruling and serving and speaking. And you know what? When it's all said and done, we shall be just like Jesus because we shall see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3. So that's a glimpse into what the Bible teaches about the image of, of God and man, and it's beautiful. Original to creation, marred by sin, renewed in Jesus Christ. Now, what does all this mean for the present chaos I mentioned earlier? How will you act on this truth about humanity? Well, first, seek seek renewal in Jesus Christ alone. There are a lot of people out there trying to Make themselves better, pursuing all kinds of things, and none of it's going to work. The only one who can renew you is Jesus. There's no other perfect man who can transform you. Ephesians 4.17 says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Remember the chaos? Chaos. Remember the, the crisis? Well, how do you change all of that chaos? How do you, what's the answer to the crisis? Who rescues humanity from the chaos? Ephesians 4.20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness. Remember Genesis 1? The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need a new self. And Jesus gives you that. Jesus alone brings the renewal. So repent from everything that mars God's image and seek renewal in Christ alone. And then second, since you are made in God's image, give yourself to God. Give yourself to God. I love the account in Mark 12. Uh, I remember Ben preaching on this years ago. It was the first time I've ever seen it when he, when he brought it out. But, you know, the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus in his words Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, in their hypocrisy, why do you put me to the death? Bring me a coin, right? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Whose likeness is on the coin? Whose image is there? And they say, Caesar's. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The coin has Caesar's image, so give it to him. You have God's image, so give yourself to God. People are confused about their worth, their identity, their purpose, because they they haven't given themselves to God. Instead, they're told, be fit, be well, be you. They're told, life isn't about finding your limits. It's about realizing that you have none. Nike. They're told, be true to yourself, follow your heart. You do you. Our culture is preoccupied with giving yourself to yourself. Jesus says, give yourself to God. Why? Because God made you in his image. Your purpose is to rule under him, to serve with him, And to speak like him. So give yourself to God in your thought life so that you think God's thoughts after him. Give yourself to God in your passions so that you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. Give yourself to God in your bodies, your physical health, your eating habits your sleep patterns, the way you take care of your body. It's all part of bearing God's image well. As Paul says elsewhere, glorify God in your body. Give yourself to God at work and reflect His joyful and generous dominion. Give yourself to God in Creativity, art, building, design, colors, music, poetry, inventions that serve others. You image God when you create beautiful things to enjoy and bless others with. Give yourself to God in every way. Three, honor the image of God in everyone. Honor the image of God in everyone. Nobody is a throwaway. From conception to natural death, every life has dignity and value. That means Christians should lead the way in working to abolish abortion. We should work to pass laws to protect the unborn image bearer. We honor God's image when we also do things like support the Pregnancy Help Center. Some of you serve there. Some of you lead there. Some of you do cleaning. Some of you make blankets and deliver them. Or you donate clothes. All of this is honoring God's image in the smallest of persons. Christians should also be the first to offer their homes and to children in need of adoption. And if you're not in a place where you can offer your home, support those who can. Christians should be the first to help the poor, to visit the orphan and the widow. Why? Well, James 1 says it links this, this kind of care to what God the Father is like and how He has implanted His Word in us to make us like Him in compassion. Churches should be the first in line to help mothers in distress, to stand against human trafficking, to care for the elderly and the disabled, There should also be a deep sense of grief when our culture pursues things that's contrary to God's image, like homosexuality and transgenderism. There should be a deep sorrow over ideologies that are lying to our children about their identity and leading them down awful paths. Also, in the church, we should pave the way for unity and reconciliation. Our community does not revolve around sex, status, or skin color. God's word teaches that we're all cut from the same cloth as God's image bearers. And in Christ, God is making a new humanity. So we pursue unity around Jesus and what Jesus is like. Honoring God's image also means you'll watch what you say about other image bearers. James chapter 3, verse 9. Some of you might do well to put a sticky note on the top of your computer screen. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why do we pursue? These are just a few examples. Why do we pursue all all of these things? Because God made man in his image. And every life matters. And then finally, help others to see the importance of God's image in man. Help others to see the importance of God's image in man. In her book, uh, Love Thy Body, uh, Nancy Piercy, you can find that in the library back there. Thank you, Brian, for putting it there. Very good. Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. This is the opening words of of her book. Human life and sexuality have become the watershed moral issues of our age. Every day, the 24-hour news cycle chronicles the advance of a secular moral revolution in areas such as sexuality, abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, and transgenderism. The new secular orthodoxy is being imposed through virtually all the major social institutions, academia, media, public schools, Hollywood, private corporations, and the law. And I read that just to say everybody's talking about this. We, we walk around sometimes waiting for like these magic moments, you know, and the stars are rightly aligned to talk to people about Jesus. Everybody's talking about this. You got an on road to the image of God and what we've covered today. Really easy. So these are perfect opportunities to show how their questions intersect with God's story about God's image in man. It's even good close at home, isn't it? In parenting, for example, it's not uncommon for older children to feel like they must prove that they're valuable, that they're worth something. And Sometimes they even start seeking their worth and, and they start seeking their worth in the approval of others, and what others think about their body and their looks and their intellect and their athleticism and their popularity. But what a liberating message we have to say to them that their worth is not found in what they do and how they perform. Their worth is not found in the opinions of others. It is found in God, who made them in His image. They have value simply because God made them a special way in His image. Or take a friend or family member struggling with depression. Thoughts can sometimes spiral into I'm worthless, I'm nothing. I have no purpose. There is no point. And perhaps these transpire into suicidal thoughts. You know, Satan relishes the opportunity to rid the world of anything that bears the image of God. And this is a perfect opportunity to sit down with them and to care for them, to cry with them, and then to remind them about how God sung his image into them. As God's image, they have worth and value and dignity, and they have a purpose and they have hope through Jesus Christ who comes to renew our image. Or take politics as another example. History has shown that once society abandons God's image in man, human rights are up for grabs. To quote Nancy Piercy again, the history of chattel slavery in America and the totalitarian systems of the 20th century give stark evidence of the morally horrific consequences of treating humans as mere things. The slaveholders argued that Africans were less than fully human. Nazi propaganda dehumanized Jews, calling them Rats. In the Red Terror, Lenin called whole categories of people parasites. In in the 1994 Rwandan massacre, the Hutus were incited to violence by government radio addresses calling the Tutsis cockroaches that must be exterminated. Some people want to keep religion out of politics. But the Bible's truth about God's image in man serves the good of society. The church has a role to play in shaping the conscience of others in politics. So work towards laws that give equal and just treatment to all humans because all bear the image of God. The implications of God's image in man are vast. I've only scratched the surface, but I hope the things that we have discussed have given you a starting place. I hope the Bible story has re-enchanted you with the beauty of God's image in man and what he has done for our renewal in Christ. In a moment, we're going to pray in clusters of three to four people. Jordan's going to lead us into that after the Lord's Supper, and we're going to pray for some of the truths we've talked about today. Uh, There's a guide in your your, uh, worship, worship folder there. I'm going to pray for some of these truths to become more part of us and more part of the culture around us. For now, we're going to sing, I think, right? Sing the gospel song. Let's do that.